So for this week's episode, I am joined by racing commentator Simon Holt. Simon has been in the industry for quite a long time now, and he's commentated on many of the big races in Britain, and we'll be trying to find out a bit more about some of those memorable stories, and also as well, try and find out what it's like to be a racing commentator. But thank you for joining us, Simon. Um, no worries. Where where did it all begin for you? Did you want to work in racing before you became a commentator? What's your background before coming into racing? Yes, I was a I was a journalist before I was a commentator. Um, I don't know why, but from a very young age, I was kind of fixated with horse racing, and I can remember watching Grand Nationals on the television when I was only sort of six and seven years old. And I don't come from any sort of horsey background at all so that's a, a real mystery why the interest emerged and um all through school i was betting illegally <laughs> on, on the horses and, oh, and greyhounds i would go up to the greyhound stadium at hove and um and just by sheer luck um when i was 18 and just completing a levels um there was a, a racing um publishing company in my hometown of Shoreham by Sea, a company that produced a, a weekly form book called Superform and um, and also an annual, uh, which they called the Races and Racehorses Annual, it was sponsored by Haig. And I got a job there um, and it was a fantastic grounding for uh, form study, handicap ratings, time figures, just general writing actually. and. Um, and so that's where I began. And eventually, when the Racing Post um, came out, uh, was about to be launched, um, it doubled the number of jobs in journalism. And so I applied for both the Racing Post and the Sporting Life um, and um, was fortunate to get interviews with both of them, um, probably based on my previous experience on form study and writing. And um, I was quite poor at the time and basically I just took the first offer and yeah. that was the sporting life so I was a journalist first uh, Chris before um, I got into commentating and and so when you started to become a journalist did you ever think about maybe becoming a commentator had you had maybe influences from like such as Peter O'Sullivan who's the legendary uh, horse racing commentator many people think of uh, mm -hmm. how, how did the commentating come about well I think I must have had a, a sense that I wanted to give it a go. I did. I did do a point to point in um, East Sussex, um, probably when I was about nineteen, um, and maybe maybe a little bit later. Um, so I, I obviously had a fancy fancy having a go at it. And you're right. I mean, I used to listen to Sir Peter O'Sullivan's commentaries obviously every week, watching racing on television, and um, so. There was something there. I, I was concentrating on working for the Sporting Life for a couple of years. And then another sort of big sort of right time, right place mo moment turned up. And that was when SIS began to introduce um, pictures into betting shops. Um, you're probably too young to remember, but in, in those days, betting shops only had an audio commentary. There were no pictures. Yeah. And so this was quite revolutionary. And so when SIS were... Um, 
were selling these pictures to betting shops, um, they wanted to improve the standard of the commentating, um, which hitherto was probably a little bit old-fashioned sounding, a little bit military, um, certainly as I was defined out compared to um, Australian commentators who were already extremely good, very fast, very slick. And um, I was encouraged to, um, on the back of having done a point-to-point -point and showing some interest, I was encouraged to put together a demo tape, which I did at Plumpton one day on a very windy day. <laughs> all, uh, it wasn't like it is now where you can record your voice on a small little smartphone. I had this clunky great tape recorder, which I tried to tuck into my coat. <laughs> um, I tried to do it out in the middle of the race course because I was shy. I didn't want people looking at me, but it was too windy. And so I had to go into the stand and I commentated on a race with people looking around at me. <laughs> so I was an absolute idiot. Um, and that was a demo tape. Unfortunately, they liked it. And gradually, over the next few months, um, I got to the stage where I was sent out and, and did my first um, race on course live. And that was a, um, it was a five furlong two-year-old seller at Folkestone, so you, you can't start at a much lower level than that. No, well, Folkestone doesn't even <laughs> exist anymore as a race course. No, so. more for pity, it was a really nice course, always like Folkestone. No, it's, it's such a shame that we lost that uh, course, but um, when so when you were preparing to become a commentator back then, did any did you have a mentor maybe that took you under their wing to show you like how how to learn and come up with some methods to help you or did you kind of have to start from scratch and just think how am I going to call a race like by looking at the colours and looking at the form how, how did it all work work for you when you were starting out? Well, they did they did provide the first few days I did on the race course was always with another commentator and it was. Um, as I can recall, you know, it was only a couple of races each day. The first day, that first day at Folkestone, I was being mentored by um, a guy called Rawley Gilbert, who was a, a com long-time commentator on ITV and indeed for Channel 4. Um, lovely man. And um, what, what was so surprising, obviously, I was very nervous because it's my first day on course um, going out live. Um, but he was nervous too. And, and I learned subsequently that... Well, Rawley always got nervous before commentating, even though he had a tremendous amount of experience. And um, and we were we were together in a very small commentary box at Folkestone. And during the afternoon, we had this smoking competition because he was a he was a chain smoker of cigarettes, and I was already on the cigars. So ridiculous! I was only twenty one. I was already smoking cigars. And we had this smoking competition in the box. Um, which he won easily. Um, and um, I was just amazed how, how nervous he was. But I think he cared that, that it went okay for me as well, and which was really nice. He was a very nice nice man, Rawley. Um, and then there were other commentators that I was sent out to, to be mentored by. Um, and it was really a question of them being allowed to go out and do whole meetings solo. Um, and then with experience, um, developing you know, um, a style, um, everybody has to, you know, it's like in anything, you know, whether you're, um, a budding sportsman, a budding writer, everyone has their influences. Um, but then you go off and hopefully develop your own style. And, um, it took a while, I think uh, I was quite influenced by Australian callers. I was very lucky to travel to Australia quite a few times in my early twenties. And I, I 
went racing quite a bit in Australia and heard some of the callers out there, some uh, brilliant commentators like Johnny Tapp and Ian Craig. And, and of course, back here, you know, Jay McGrath came on the scene when the Racing Post yeah. uh, launched because he got a job on the Racing Post and he'd been the, the main commentator in Hong Kong. And, and he really shook things up, I think, in the comment, in the commentary world here because he came, came over and he was much slicker. The phraseology was uh, very colourful. And so he was an influence as well. And um, uh, for a while, I think I probably did sound a bit Australian um, and then um, slowly developed my own style. No, I've always thought that the Australia, um, racing commentators sometimes always had a, a bit of an Australian racing kind of twang to it um, mm. growing up over the years, watch it, watching the likes of yourselves. But uh, mm. it's interesting that you say that the Australians seem to be the, the players to go to, as it were. Um mm. So, moving on from like when you were learning on to become a commentator, when when did you get noticed to um, cover some of like the bigger races? Uh, what was would you say the first big well known race you commentated on? The first big one, and it came I think too early for me, was the Welsh Grand National, um, and I think I'd only been going six months or something, and um, and. To be honest, it's not not a race I would care to listen to again because um, I I just mistimed it completely. And after a circuit, um, my voice was already too high. And um, and of course, Chester's a <laughs> bloody big race course. Yeah, had to go difficult. around. Had to go around again. And um, by the time that Bonanza Boy was leading them home up the home straight um after the second circuit uh, you know i was squeaking and it, you know it's just embarrassing it was just inexperienced really and um i had a couple of early major mistakes as well i got i got a well it's hard to believe this but i got a two-runner race wrong not the horses but i got <laughs> the jockeys wrong that was unbelievably oh, no. embarrassing so i and that was at chepstow as well i was sort of screaming and saying oh here's another winner for the champion jockey peter scudamore it's peter scudamore again and he was halfway down the track um <laughs> chasing his weighing room colleague tom morgan so that was a day that i actually did want to die oh, um, no. And then there was another occasion at Lingfield where I, I got them a bit muddled up. And it, it was just, and that can happen any day, actually. I mean, um, I think there are an amazingly few number of mistakes made by commentators, um, which is t a testament, I think, to the overall quality. Um, because you can always have a, you know, a mental error. Um, and um, I remember I, I was very lucky to meet Julie Dench a few years ago. And... Um, we just got talking and I, I, I was talking about, I asked her about remembering the scripts and she said, well, how do you remember the colours? And I said, well, you know, the big fear is um, an aberration, you know, a complete mental blank. And she, and she said, she said, oh, an aberration. I know what that feels like. <laughs> so she's got, she had it as well. It's the same for actors learning, learning a script and, and for us learning colours. And that's what you really feel, or you, sorry, you, what you really fear is a sudden, just a bit of human fallibility. Would you say the art of commentary is a bit like a performer on the stage, as it were? So you could maybe relate with Judy Dench, you kind of, you're taking the audience on a journey, even though it's only a couple of minutes, you, you kind of roll up on the, on the build up, maybe taking them into the race. And then obviously when it comes to the more dramatic, um, climax of the race, you obviously 
you go for it more, don't you? Would you say there's definitely a parallel there? Yeah, I think that's a nice way of putting it, you know, taking them on the journey. Um, I don't think it's a, 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 an identical uh, parallel, but because I think first and foremost, you know, we've got to be accurate. Um, that's the first requirement of the job, um, hopefully to call the horses accurately in the correct order, maybe giving some colour identification as well. But then I think there is an element of performance, um, particularly in the big races um, or any race, uh, really, because people have had a bet and they they want to get excited and if their horse wins and the commentator sounds excited too, then all the better. So I think there is an element of performance and um, and I've always been a bit conscious in when I've been lucky enough to call some of the big races that these are races that will probably get replayed and, um, you know, it would, it would be quite nice if I found the right words and the right tone um, at the end of the race and that is something that sometimes has worked and sometimes it hasn't. I would say probably one of your more memorable recent uh, commentaries was probably last year in the King George between the Nabal and uh, Crystal Ocean. Uh, what was that like to co- commentate on? Was that quite a, one of the best races you've ever commentated on would you say? Well it was a very very good race. Um, it's Funny enough it's not a commentary that I enjoy listening to. I cringe a little bit because my voice cracks at the end and that's not really great. Although people seem to love that bit of emotion. I do get quite emotional in some races and I get attached um, to certain horses. Um, I always have done. Um, I love the, I absolutely love the sport so I suppose it's not a big surprise but there are one or two commentaries like that that I do cringe a little bit to listen to them back if if I've just got a bit over the top um, and there was one quite early on well, after I joined Channel 4 um, in the champion chase at Cheltenham which was a tremendous finish between Andrew John Bleur and Direct Route and um, that was another occasion where um, basically um, my voice was at the top end and squeaking a bit and it, 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 you know it's not something that I really like to listen back to but but you know the feedback that I get for that those sort of um, excited emotional causes is is much greater than for what I would consider to be a better commentary so maybe I've got it wrong what would you say one of your better commentaries has been that you've you sit there and you you can watch the replay many times and you go you know what I think I think that's my finest my finest hour in the chair oh i don't know that's a very hard question to answer i mean to be honest um i i couldn't it'd be very difficult to pick out one i mean there's been a, a few i mean i think um i think one of the cleverest ones probably or just well, not so clever it's probably over the top but just being aware of what was happening was when sprinter sacra won his um, second champion chase having had all those injury problems and a lot of people regard that as one of the more emotional wins in the last few years and and it was certainly something that got me um very excited beforehand and in the races it was emotional but um i used a phrase um uh, the impossible dream coming true and and the only reason i did it was because earlier in the day we'd had a feature on the channel 4 program uh in the build-up all about sprinter sack routes uh, come back and um uh, uh and could the impossible dream come true and they they laid over the um feature the music from a musical called um man of la mancha and this song the impossible dream was the best known 
song from that musical. So, uh, and at the end of every program, um, I'm not sure they do on ITV, but certainly every Channel 4 racing program, we always used to have a montage at the end, a sort of uh, edited together musical sequence, just rounding up what had happened during the day. And I knew that they would probably, if Sprinter Sacra won, that they would again use that that music yeah. and take bits out of the feature that appeared earlier on. And so I just thought before the race, I thought, if this if this whole horse does deliver today, I will use those that phrase. And um and it just couldn't have worked better. And it was um it was just a really emotional win and uh, I I definitely would say that that was one of my favourite races I've commentated on. Yeah, it's, it, I, 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 unfortunately, I can't really remember that too much, but I do, I have seen the replays of Sprinter Sacra, and I've got to say that probably was one of the standout races I've ever seen. So it must have been an honour to commentate on that race. Um, well, I think, I think just, um, it's like in all sport, really. There's, there's something very um, appealing, something very compelling about the big comeback. Um, you know, I can remember as a boy watching Mohamed Ali winning his is winning the title again, you know, Harry Carpenter commentating. Um, and it was just a fantastic comeback. And, and I think, I think it is very compelling. And it was, um, it was certainly the case of Sprinter Sack, which had all those, those seas of the, the sea of troubles, the injuries. And, um, it was the same with Denman who had his fibrillating heart, you know, and I think these things are, are very, uh, very emotive. And, and, I, and another one, of course, was Corto Star because he'd been written off. Um, when he pulled up at Punchestown um, after finishing third to long run in the Gold Cup, and people were saying, "Oh, you know, the old horse done a fantastic, had a fantastic career, and you know, now is the time that he's, you know, just goes into honourable retirement." And and um, Paul Nichols didn't quite see it that way, and and everything that Quarto Star did the following autumn on the gallop suggested that he was well and of course he turned up at Haydock in the Betfair chase up against the Gold Cup win a long run and he beat him and and it, that was a that was another really incredible day because I can remember Nichols just after the race punching the air in sheer vindication and I think it was the greatest day that Haydock has probably staged uh Corto Star's comeback win in the Betfair chase um and it just illustrates you know how compelling that is yeah, it must be amazing to commentate on those wonderful races. Um, when it comes to maybe some of the more difficult races to commentate, would you say maybe a race like the Epsom Dash or the Cambridgeshire Handicap in Newmarket, are they quite different challenge altogether? And when you get those those races right, is that one of the best moments as a commentator you can get when you know you've navigated your way through a big runner field? Well, it's, it's, it's a feeling of relief, to be honest. I mean, whereas in some of the big races um, where there aren't too many runners um, and you're, you're trying to, as I said earlier, trying to um, give some sense of the drama and find the right words, there are other races where you just want to get through it and not get it wrong. And that, those races you mentioned are certainly uh, fall under that uh, heading. I mean, the, the dash at Epsom, I think it's 20 runners, um, and you've got it. You know, it's the fastest five furlong course, certainly in this country, and one of the fastest in the world. And um, you know, you've got less than a minute to to sort it out, and invariably there's at least one or two finishing extremely quickly. Um, 
while others are slowing down and um, it can be pretty hairy and the Cambridgeshire and the Cesare which I've done quite a few of those and, and the, the, I never feel completely comfortable uh, uh, you know going into them they're um, enormously challenging races to do and you know it's always a massive relief just to to get through and occasionally you get something that that, that might just frighten you I remember um, probably 10 years ago there was a horse of uh, David Ellsworth called Spanish Don he was an outsider and I think it was the Cambridgeshire and he suddenly sluiced up the stand side rail very late and um, I picked him out but it, it could have it could have gone the other way yeah um, you know you, you're just relying on that um, instant memory uh, a split second memory at those moments and it can be a bit frightening um, and it's probably one of the reasons that we we don't have an enormous number of young people that want to be commentators. There are there are a few, but there haven't been you know that many knocks at the door, and you know um, and you know there will be trials, I'm sure, at some stage in the in the future, and it'll be interesting to see how many want to actually come and do it. Um, it's it's um, it's a job that you, where you are kind of um, walking a bit of a mental tightrope. Yeah, I mean, I've always love the idea of being uh, a commentator it was kind of one of the first things that I thought about if I wanted to get a, into a career in racing but I have found it incredibly difficult I, I find it a lot easier um, practicing on the replays and doing it in the flesh I've been fortunate to have one or two goes um, at, Good, mm. at Goodwood and I found it so hard at Goodwood because it was probably the worst one of the most difficult tracks to actually um, see especially when they were around at the back bend uh, when it comes to ob observing a race, are you quite traditional, maybe using the binoculars, or do you rely on, on the monitors you're provided with? What, what kind of your the tool you use? Well, it, it's mostly a TV audience. Okay, so Doris Goodwood or Royal Ascot, there might be there'll, there'll obviously be crowds there, but a lot of them are watching on the big screen now. You know, we have these fantastic big screens at the races. So it's predominantly a TV audience, and so... I think it has shifted a little bit. When I started out, um, the pictures weren't very good. There were no big screens. Um, this is going back to the late 80s, early 90s. And um, we actually, in a way then, the job was a lot harder um, because um, the safety limits were not as low and you could have a, a 30 runner uh, maiden on the straight course at Redcar, for example, and that was a massive challenge. Mm. But the saving grace was that the commentator couldn't be sure what was leading in the early stages or what was up there, but neither neither could anyone else watching. <laughs> so it didn't really matter, you know. No. Um, things have got easier now, but but the scrutiny has become greater because everybody can see so much better. Yeah. Um, so overall, it's much more of a TV sport, um, and therefore a lot of the a lot of the newer commentators and indeed myself do a lot more to the monitor, but I'm still a little bit old fashioned and probably use the binoculars a bit more than some of the others. However, it can be a mistake. Uh, it can be a good thing and a bad thing. A good thing because you can maybe pick up a few horses pulling up or, or um, comment on how a jockey is if, if, if there's been a faller uh, and the horse as well, which is information the public likes to hear. But on the other hand, you can pick your bins up at the very wrong moment, the very moment when something happens obviously on the screen mm. and you've missed it, yeah. you know, and then you, you feel a right fall. And um, th th that's just bad luck. So um, 
So I would say it's most of the commentators use the monitor more than binoculars, um, and I do indeed. But but um, I still still think binoculars are really important because what happens if the monitor break, breaks down? Um, yeah. Um, and in jump races, what happens? You know, when they get really strung out, maybe on a really muddy day. So I think binoculars are still a really important tool, tool for the job. It seems like a key message if you want to be a commentator is be prepared and obviously if you say and the monitor goes down having those binoculars just just as part of that uh, system of trying to get it right um when it comes to maybe race courses for example that you've commentated on do you have favorites that you like to commentate on um maybe because they're a bit more easier or, or do you dread something you think oh god when they go down the back there and i've only i, I, I can't see them that well um yeah do you have challenging um, tracks I mean, there are tracks I really enjoy commentating at, and Goodwood is one of them, funny enough. And uh, I can I can understand what you meant when you saw it's a really difficult course. But, yeah. But once you get used to it, um, I don't know. I've always found it quite easy to get into a rhythm at Goodwood, and um, and the commentary. It's very important that the commentary position is is in the right place at Goodwood. It's a it's pretty much on the line, and um, you get a good view. Um, Cheltenham is very good. Um, always enjoy commentating at Sheldon. And then some of the tracks are quite straightforward, like Plumpton and Fontwell, which I've done a lot of work at. And, mm. um, you know, they, they're quite straightforward. But but some tracks, you know, the, the commentary positions are not so good and the terrain, you know, they can be flitting in and out of trees. Um, and I would say red car is quite a tough one, um, mainly because you can get a real, um, on a sunny day, there's a real shimmer that falls on, on you know, as you look down the course. Um, and they're a long way away at points on the course. Um, big tracks, obviously, are, you know, where they're a long way away and maybe the cameras are not so well positioned. They're tough. Um, and, um, you know, uh, the weather can can play a big part in it as well. You know, if you if you just cannot see, and Goodwood can be bad for that, and Brighton can yeah. as well, when, when you get the, um, the sea frets coming in and you, you literally can't see, see very well at all. And... Um, I think re really it's managing, uh, coping of those situations, which is a, which is all part of the challenge. And you know, I've had quite a few days where visibility's been down to, you know, less than a furlong. I had one actually this uh, last jump season at Exeter one day where there was just so little visibility, and and that's when you you just have to improvise and um, try to pick them out as they flash through the camera. Um, and maybe just try and keep the crowd interested and, and maybe a bit ent entertained as well. You know, it's all, all part of the repertoire, I suppose. Um, so it, it does depend um, on those commentary positions. There's a few courses. I, I mean, there aren't many race courses I think aren't nice places. I think race courses generally are a lovely place, lovely places to be. There aren't many that I sort of dread going to. I mean, maybe they're a long way away, uh, um, a long drive. And, um, and I suppose there's, certain days i think well they're going to be very um loud and drunken and that sort of thing which can be distracting but no generally i just um it's just a question of getting your head down and, and doing the job yeah i mean like like i said you you've probably been to all the race courses now and you have a much better idea of me obviously than what are the better racetracks and what aren't um you were saying that there's not many com commentators coming through or not many uh, young people are wanting to show themselves um to be a commentator what would you say to anyone that does want to become a commentator what what would your like say three main 
pieces of advice be anyone wanting to have a go? Well, I think what's what's pretty obvious, and I think some of my colleagues would say, is we've all had um, people get in touch with us and um, saying, I'd like to be a commentator. And, and I've taken quite a few people um, to the, to race meetings where there's a second commentary box and that, that, that they can record their commentaries. And um, there's a couple of young youngsters at the moment that are, that are doing okay. Um, it's, it, you can tell immediately whether they can do it or not. And I think there's not much gray area. Um, you either can do it or you can't. Um, you can either remember the colors and the names and the colors or you can't. Um, one, one very good bit of advice I had very early on came from a guy called Peter Bromley, who was the um, long time commentator on uh, the BBC radio. And um, he, he stressed to me the, the absolute importance of diction, that you are clear and you enunciate well and that people can understand what you're saying. He said, there's no point. If, if people can't hear what you're saying, then there's, there's not, not much point. And um, uh, funny enough, I feel this about some um, music because I, I sometimes fear, I, I sometimes sympathize for... Uh, the writers of songs, and then you can't hear those words when they're performed. Um, sometimes it's very hard to pick out the lyrics of songs uh, because of the way the, the singer or the group performs it. And I always think that's uh, a bit of a shame. Um, so you're kind of guessing what, what the lyrics are. And uh, I just think certainly because we are in the, it's a job of information really and description that um, it was very good advice that you, you have to have clean diction um, and then, obviously, you you need to have, um, I think if you're lucky, you have a decent voice. Um, you know, not everyone is blessed with a, a good microphone voice. Um, but what I would say, if it's not good when you're young, it'll probably get a whole lot better as you get older. And if there's one of the few um, good things about getting older, and there aren't many, is that your voice, yeah. your voice does become much better in terms of, being broadcastable and you know if you think of um, some of the old commentators of the past um you know the, and if you hear them younger and if you hear some of my commentaries when i was in my 20s in the 80s 90s and late 80s 90s and you know again i cringe a little because i sound so young and that is just one thing that does improve uh, with age you know and bit of a bit of booze helps a few cigars you know i wouldn't that, not necessarily saying that that's my advice but it probably no. doesn't uh, doesn't do too much harm either uh, for your actual voice but um yeah uh, but i think that what's clear is whether someone can do it or not and um and i think it's it becomes pretty apparent to them as well when they're struggling as you you suggested that yeah you know you found it difficult and maybe it wasn't the right route for you to go down um or that you'd have to practice really hard to, uh, and I think most people, that, most of the commentators today would say that they they quickly felt that they could do it, that there was a sort of a natural ability to do it and that they didn't have to work too hard. And the, the hard work then was just polishing up the act. Yeah, I think I think from my, my point of view, I've, I would say that the more practice you do, the better. And I, and I, mm. I, I, I myself, I haven't really looked at doing that so much in the past year. Um, but but when I was doing it, I was practicing a lot. But uh, I, it's something that I wouldn't mind maybe going back to 
um, mm. in the future. Uh, but yeah, I, I'd say definitely practice is key because the more you do, but I think it's like it with anything in life, the more you commit to something and the more you do, the, the better you'll become. But um, no, thank you for um, joining us on our podcast, Simon. No worries. Yeah, no worries at all. Really appreciated it. And if anyone uh, wants to uh, uh, become a commentator, I would really try and pursue it if you can, because I think it's a, it's a it would be a brilliant job and like i said simon says there's not many young commentators coming through and mm. we, we need more but um no thanks for coming on simon and we'll be having more podcasts coming out soon so please follow us using our soundcloud page here at in the saddle podcast we're also now available on twitter using our handle at in the saddle pod and you can follow us on facebook and instagram 